The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. There's an ever-increasing number of people who've been identified in this Me Too culture for sexual abuse, harassment, or gender violence. What happens once they're dismissed or replaced? Do they ever seek treatment? Whether or not criminal charges are filed, is treatment for sexual offenders available? Is it effective? Our guest today, who's going to address those questions and more, is Stephen Sawyer, licensed clinical social worker and co-author of group therapy, the book Group Therapy with Sexual Abusers. He has worked 30 years in the field with treatment, research, and assessment of hundreds of sexual offenders. Stephen Sawyer is the past president of the Minnesota chapter of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. He manages an outpatient treatment program for adults who have committed sexual crimes and serves as a consultant to Catholic religious orders on matters of sexual abuse prevention and management. He has published many articles and chapters on treatment of sexual offenders and treatment outcome research. He was founding board member and executive director of Project Pathfinder, a nonprofit agency that specializes in the treatment of children, teens, and adults with sexual behavioral problems. He's also president of Soya Solutions, a private clinical and consulting practice. Stephen Sawyer, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen, let's start by defining sexual offense. What comes under that heading? There's a, a, an array of behaviors. Um, typically, it's, it's first used in, in criminal law to describe legally defined behaviors. Uh, each state is different in terms of the specifics, but the behaviors range from something like sexual harassment, which we hear about, although it's criminalized differently in different jurisdictions, to something maybe more clearly offensive like public exposing. Um, clinically, it's called exhibitionism. Uh, window peeping is, is uh, also clinically called voyeurism. Um, to more hands-on kinds of offenses, physical assault uh, with a sexual component, and at, at the most severe end, um, forcible sexual assault of a stranger. There's lots of variations within that spectrum. Um, more recently with the Internet, we see many more uh, cases of prosecution um, where adults have possessed, looked at, or distributed um, sexual images of children. We call that child pornography. So there's mm-hmm. a range of behaviors that we fit into that category. Now, do you find, if we look at that range, that there are certain people in certain parts of that range who are more likely to seek treatment? Does anyone seek treatment in this continuum of sexual offenders? What, what has been your experience? Unfortunately, most people come to treatment after they've been caught, either by a, a family member or friend um, or caught by the, the criminal justice system. There are some people in some places that do seek treatment, um, and they have not been charged criminally, um, but they simply want help to change. Unfortunately, there's such such a negative view, and, and we've done some, some looking at the attitudes about this. People are afraid to come forward. 
they're they're afraid of in some cases being reported and, and there are mandatory reporting laws and that might be a, a real risk uh, for them others are afraid to come forward even if they haven't yet committed a sexual offense but they're afraid of all of the implications and and um, all the unknowns so most often it's people who've been caught um, by family members and, or the criminal justice system, and they're mm, then uh, court-ordered to treatment. Okay, so very often they're mandated to treatment. Uh, we're right. going to look a little closer at treatment, but when, and I think maybe Weber, there's already brought it up, there's a bias, there's anger, there's fear, and there's bewilderment when people think about sexual offenders. What do you understand as some of the causes of sexually abusive behavior? I know in your book, your excellent book, you talk about attachment and insecure attachment as one one aspect that might play a part in a person's behavior in terms of intimacy and sexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, and, and just to preface that and say there's there's not one single theory this is still an emerging science and we find there's a number of different underlying contributing factors um so attachment is one it's it's getting a little more popularity in our field recently um so the concept of attachment attachment starts in in childhood uh, very early infancy with with um, the connection between the child and the mother or parents and um, and when that is not an ideal relationship, um, we think of what what can happen in, um, in terms of disrupted attachment or insecure attachment. And so, if we this would be a whole hour conversation about attachment and how it forms or how it's disrupted. Um, but adults with a form of insecure attachment, either dismissive or avoidant. Um, have difficulty in adult peer age relationships. They have difficulty getting intimacy needs met. They have difficulty sustaining meaningful peer age adult relationships. And so we think of some, primarily men, um, who commit sexual offenses. One of the underlying issues is they have a hard time having a meaningful relationship. They don't know how to be intimate. They don't know how to stay close in a relationship. They don't know how to communicate clearly solve pretty normal human relationship problems. And then, so here we, here we come into these many different pathways to mm, sexual great. abuse. Some regress. Some men that have been abusive toward children, they're not, they're not diagnosed with pedophilia, but they regress. So one of the things we know is that, um, that relationship skills, relationship intimacy is a factor. We know that um, social insecurity can be a factor. Um, uh, inability to manage aggression and anger can be a factor. Um, culture, where clients uh, that I work with grew up can be a factor. So the number mm-hmm. of different underlying contributing factors we think of it rather than causes um, depends you know, on the client and their situation. You gave one example in the book that stuck in my mind, and it was a man who had uh, a very abusive childhood and very little attachment to either parent, and he was extremely insecure and didn't date much, so he married the first person who would date him for more than a few months, and then he was obsessively um, kind of watching her. He accused her of trying to leave him everywhere possible and when she finally began to push back uh, and I think it's interesting he began to become involved with her teenage stepdaughter so and his event was eventually arrested for that so you could see how he simply as you're saying could not manage appropriate intimacy even in the choice of the uh, spouse and much less instead of no. talking to her regressing to sexual molest- you know molestation of a child yes yeah so the, the, go ahead. the challenge here is that there's there's so many different uh, circumstances that these men grow up in and live in um, and and then we have to think about uh, in that particular situation with that particular relationship, 
um, those relationship dynamics. It, it was a troubled relationship, and this happens so often. You must witness this all the time. Couples in relationships don't know how to solve, don't know how to work through the differences, the conflicts, the fears, um, and they don't seek help, and the be- and behaviors deteriorate. It's such a human condition. That that's mm-hmm. part of what's challenging about this. It's human nature, um, and it- rather than monsters. So true, and I, I, I thought our listeners might be interested in this, which comes right from your book. It's the backdrop to even the attachment problems. You quote Levinson, Willis, and Prescott in a study in which they compared 679 sexual offenders with men in the population, same number, and using the childhood experience scale so interesting to me that the offenders were three times more likely to have dealt with sexual abuse as children, two times more likely to have dealt with physical abuse, 13 times more likely to be verbally abused in their childhood, four times emotionally neglected and having come from broken homes. And particularly with men, they were men who had problems with fathers. So when you start to add up all the factors the complication of what really prompts really, you know, frightening behavior, um, but behavior that really needs to be helped in our sexual offenders. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's a, a relatively new um, lens that we're looking at this population with. Um, that, you know, that's fairly recent research, and there's more research being conducted. But that was that's a fascinating study that... Um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study by the Center for Disease Control. And it really chronicles the, the long-term effects on children who, are the, who, who live in environments that are abusive. The, the terribly expensive and long-term mental health, physical health problems for the adults who came out of childhood with those kinds of experiences. So to apply that that structure and that that concept to this population if we if we saw the last 300 clients I've met and probably half of them had some kind of adverse childhood experience if we saw them as children and and gave them the help they needed then we might be preventing these those young children from growing up and and acting out all the difficulties they had it's, mm-hmm. it's a terrible problem but nationally, it's, and it's just—it's it, it, so important to be looking at the possibility of prevention. But then, what that does is broaden our lens and allows us to think about our clients um, and the the circumstances they grew up in. In the field that I am working in, we, we've gotten much more deeply attuned to looking at context, understanding the roots of their offending behavior. And not not using labels. We found the label "sex offender" is not helpful. It 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 evokes only one single image of the worst of the worst. And if I can take a second, um, really important to understand that there's a a very wide range of individuals who who commit some kind of harmful sexual act. A very small percentage are what we might think of as the highest risk, repeat, most dangerous. It's a small percentage. Uh, the majority, um, some studies would say 80 to 90% do not reoffend and are not at that highest risk. So we need to be able to understand this very diverse population and all the complexities of their mental health, their sexual health, their chemical use, um, and understand all those factors. And that, that's part of what goes into uh, a more complex and comprehensive treatment. Um, but we, part the, of why we we're trying to... Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say one of the things over and over again you hear in the literature is just what you're saying. Treatment's effective for most but not for all. Uh, And one of the things that we're almost out of time, but one of the things I want us to think about is what people step in and say to me in terms of the pushback 
to treatment for offenders is, do you mean that you're going to look at their backgrounds and let them use that as an excuse for abusive acts? Um, Is treatment really going to foster a sense that they're okay when they're really dangerous? So I, I want us to come back, and I know that you're going to have answers to that, to really help our listeners understand how important treatment is in terms of managing risk and, I, and, and much more of what you're going to say. But let's come back and, and talk to our listeners about the confusion and sometimes the bias against not only sexual offenders, but even clinicians who work with sexual offenders. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay. Okay. That sounds interesting. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Stephen Sawyer, licensed clinical social worker with 30 years' experience in this field and the co-author of Group Therapy with Sexual Abusers. We also want listeners out there to know that if they are looking for treatment, one resource is to contact the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, That's the initials are A-T-S-A. And another very important resource for those looking for help as well as for family members looking support is a group called Stop It Now. They're not a 24-7 hotline, but they're a very valuable referral service. And their number is 1-888-773-8368. Stay with us. We'll be back with more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In fitness and health, we all deserve a second chance. Join host Michael Skog for the program, You Only Stronger. You always have the ability to start fresh, even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program. Even small steps taken throughout the day can help. Each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and will want to hear your feedback. You Only Stronger airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Stephen Sawyer, and we've been speaking about, at this point, 
treatment for sexual offenders. And I had ended our last segment with the with the pushback that people who knew I was going to do the show really um, asked me, and that is, is treatment really an opportunity to excuse sexually abusive behavior? Where does that fit in with accountability? Can there be treatment with accountability and at the same time take into account the maybe horrendous childhood a abuser or a pedophile might have had? And so that's the question we're, we've got on the table, Steve. Yeah. Sure. Clearly, um, treatment programs, um, let, me, let me do it the other way first. That one, of the, one of the first goals is change. Change in behavior, change in self-understanding, change in ways of living, change in attitudes. And part of the platform to get to make change is to understand how the person got to the point of committing that harmful sexual act. That requires accountability to be able to talk clearly about what they did, what led up to that behavior or if there's more than one offensive behavior, then what, what's the sequence of events and behaviors and thoughts and feelings that allowed those behaviors to occur? That's accountability. It's not about bashing someone and forcing them to admit. It's about understanding how the person got to that point in their life where they allowed themselves to make the decision to offend against someone. And for the, well, the majority, the 90 plus percent, it's a decision or a series of decisions. So unraveling how an otherwise, you know, many of these people are otherwise reasonably upstanding citizens, but they made decisions, and those decisions allowed them to not have empathy, allowed them to do what, what in their own morality they knew was wrong, but they did it anyway. And so that, the process of un, uh, unpacking that that's accountability. It's accountability mm. for what they did, how, what they thought about, decisions they made, and then understanding the underlying factors. And that's, that's where the change happens over the course of treatment. So yes, so, accountability and treatment happen in the same, at the same time. So if, if I'm someone who's worried about um, treatment for sexual offenders, I might ask you, well, how would you prevent more acting out behavior? How would you prevent relapse? How would we ever be sure that the person was really going to be safe from hurting and, and children would be safe um, near this yeah. person? We There's some research that's continuing to be evolving that um, has looked at factors that... that we think are relevant to reoffending after the first time they've been caught or identified. And so some examples are um, stable relationships, um, ability to manage themselves, manage money, manage lifestyle, um, manage a job, um, ability to manage their own sexuality, sexual impulses, sexual urges, um, ability to, to have satisfying, healthy relationships, um, and chemical use, uh, obviously. Um, one other one is uh, it, being able to have relationships such that they don't feel lonely. So those are some of the factors that could be relevant to reoffending. That's some of what's worked on in treatment. So to go to your question, we're not just, this is not just an academic exercise where somebody sits in a classroom and writes down what they will do in the future. This is about how they're changing their life right now. Mm -hmm. So we look for who are their new friends. Do they still spend time with friends who use alcohol and drugs all weekend and are irresponsible, or do they have responsible friends? Do they have intimate relationships? Are they able to manage their life day to day? Do they have a healthy a healthy sexuality that they didn't have years ago. So we're looking for living differently, not mm -hmm. just what someone would propose that they would do in the future. And that's all part of a relapse prevention plan that most programs have clients do as they finish treatment. So it's a, it's a, it's a prescription for living, but, but they need to be doing that 
living differently while they're in treatment. So we witness the change while they're in treatment, and that's part of what allows them to progress through treatment. Mm. So that gives us a little bit of confidence that it isn't just a, uh, an intellectual exercise, but it's we witness the change. And family members I talk to, they see change. If we're working with the probation and courts, they see change. So hmm. okay. that helps with a little bit of confidence that they may be able to sustain that change in the future. Not everybody does, but the majority can. Well, I, I want to quote another study and then really invite you to, to talk a little bit about how group treatment is the one that you in particular have an interest in. I myself ascribe to group treatment, but I, I wanted listeners to hear a Levinson study where 582 offenders who I believe had been incarcerated were asked, well, what were the most important things that came out of treatment? And I was so sort of surprised, but uh, hopeful when the first one they said was accepting responsibility. The second factor mm-hmm. they thought was important was victim empathy. And the third was reduction of compulsive sexual acting out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so I think when you see that that an offender is talking about accepting responsibility and victim empathy as crucial, then we know they have changed in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting to think about, um, to put yourself in their shoes. Many, many men, not all, but many, feel ashamed about what they did. They feel ashamed about getting caught. It's, it's a very shaming experience, to, especially in places where there's a lot of publicity or public registries. It, it, is, it is terrible. I, I have, I've heard recent stories about um, men in treatment who have been in a public situation, a public event of some kind or a, a social event, and somebody recognizes them and, mm. and outs them in this public event. And this mm. is men that were their, their offense was many years ago, but the shame, the, the, the shame in the moment is, is hard to bear, and it, and it reinvigorates the shame they felt when they finally got caught. So underneath this, for a lot of men, is shame. Coming to treatment, they need to tell their story, and they do it in a group. And so we know from the group therapy literature, um, what installation of hope, um, universality, we know that there's almost automatically a, a therapeutic factor of coming into a group where there is no shaming, and everybody that's in that treatment group is asked to talk about their history, to talk about their offense. That's, you know, part of the repair of shame is, is working through it with other people and not feeling defective. That underlying, you know, shame, underlying shame is a feeling of being defective. Being in a room of other men um, and, and joining each other and saying, yep, I, I came from this terrible history, I did these terrible things, I feel horrible about it, and I want to change. And that that becomes the foundation of doing the work that they need to do, understanding their history, understanding their offense cycles, understanding compulsive behavior for those that have it. Um, so that, that, that environment in groups that, that, that are facilitated that way, um, simply being in the room is, is a beginning of healing, and it makes accountability mm. easier. It makes, mm. it, it makes it, accountability becomes the norm. Uh, it's an expectation, and then when someone isn't accountable, the group is there to say, "What you know? What's going on? Why? Why did you lie to us?" Um, and so the group becomes a family of sorts that is going to both hold on. I call it connected accountability. We're going to hold your hand. We're going to give you a hug, and you need to be accountable at the same you, time. You gave um, a great example in one of the groups in the book, and, and, and this will give listeners a, a little bit of a window into how groups become so powerful. So you have a group and two members, two newer members come in, and one says, you know, I really don't even know if I should be here. I was entrapped. Uh, it was entrapment. A cop set me up. Um, I'm not, a, you know, I shouldn't be here. And someone else said, I was entrapped. I, I, I feel like entrapment was the reason that I'm here too. Uh, you know, I'm not a sexual offender. 
and the, it's a female group leader, and she says, I can understand the um, upset and the feeling of being entrapped that you're talking about, but maybe there's more to it. And then she asks the group, do they, you know, do they want to respond? And one of the people in the group says, I got it, guys. I've been there. There could be entrapment. There can be every possible variable. But you know what? I'm a sexual offender. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. we are here. And I thought, mm-hmm. and, and, and I've done groups, but Steve's done groups with this population. It's enormously powerful when people in the group confront much more powerful than the leader. Right, Steve? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, um, one of my very early mentors was actually a fellow in AGPA. Um, Dr. Pearl Rosenberg, sure. and um, I was able to do some um, some training with her over many years. And I, I was early in my career, and I I had a particularly wonderful group. and And I proudly said, "Well, I I think the group's doing really well. They're starting to say what I was going to say." <laughs> and she she joined in, and she said, "Well, Steve, what happens when the group starts saying things that you hadn't thought of?" And yeah. that that really that turned my thinking about letting the group work with each other and helping them form the connections and form what we think of as cohesion in the group. And that's where some of the best work happens is when those group members are working closely with each other, challenging each other, supporting each other, sharing in grief, sharing in all the traumatic experiences of being prosecuted and losing family, losing jobs. Hearing it from each other helps them feel more normal and not alienated. Feeling alienated can be a factor in reoffending. Yes. Mm-hmm. So a group experience is repair not only reparative, but it's also can be preventive. And when, when, it's, you, when it's facilitated that way. And when you think, as you described, we we talked about the early backgrounds, someone who has had real problems with relatedness and intimacy, and has been socially very lonely, very frightened, very reclusive, the group may be the first time they're going to learn how to deal with people, which has to help in the acting out, even in developmentally inappropriate ways or sexually aggressive ways. It almost has to help because it's finally meeting some of those early unmet skills and needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, go back to attachments. Um, for those, so many of these have some form of insecure attachment. And so doing relationship repair within the group environment, having being able to be confronted and not punished, being able to be challenged and not rejected, um, taking the risk to be assertive without the fear of reprisal. Um, all Those are all social skills that some people learn and some don't. Some grow up in environments where it's not safe to speak up or they've been shamed or they've been punished for having a voice. Um, some are, grew up being afraid of challenge because challenge feels like confronting and they learn that being confronted um, is when you get hurt. Mm. So yeah, so ideally, and not all not all practitioners facilitate their groups this way, but that was part of the point of our book is to is to educate about the potential when relationships in the group are are facilitated and and the, all the therapeutic opportunities that that brings. That's why that's why we think that group therapy is significantly underutilized because so many mm-hmm. programs still use it as a as a source of confrontation or challenge. And they don't really facilitate the, the relationship potential. Hmm. Now, are there ever um, mixed groups, men and women groups? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the only statistic I know very well is here in Minnesota, there's something like there's several thousand men in prison for sex crimes, and there's maybe 100 women. Oh, um, boy. Mm-hmm. Proportionally, there's studies, many, 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 many studies about men, uh, and I'm talking adults right now, not adolescents, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and very, very few studies about women. So there's very few women in, in that we know about. Um, we know that they're not all reported, but there's very few women that have been identified. So I know, I've known of a few cases where programs have tried to have 
mixed gender groups and they're, they're just not sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact is there's very few groups just for women because there's so few women um, mm. that, that we know about in the system. So, no, typically not. They're not um, both genders in the same group. So not, let me ask... that it couldn't happen clinically. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about... Um, do people terminate and then go into some ongoing uh, life group like AA? And I know we have um, 12-step programs for sexual offenders. For In the programs that you have run, for how long is a person in group and individual? And I know people are mandated. There's parole officers sometimes involved. But what generally happens in the, in the sequence of treatment? Uh, typically, and again, this this varies from state to state, but typically treatment is open-ended. So they come into treatment, they have treatment goals to work on and work through and make changes. And then when they're finished with treatment, they're discharged. Typically there's aftercare. And aftercare in some states it has to go on for many years. In other states it's, it's um, more individualized. So... Um, typical range of treatment might be a year to three years, and aftercare could be a year to, to five years. Um, I think there's at least one state that requires lifetime treatment, which mm. which is controversial. Um, but my my own view is that um, we can't watch these folks forever, and treatment is supposed to help them change and live differently, and probation if they've been in the court system, typically doesn't last forever. So at some point they need to go and live their life and see if they can succeed. Okay. So typically they, they're discharged from treatment, they finish aftercare, and their case is closed and they go live their life and hopefully they don't, they don't get in trouble again. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, we're going to yeah. take a break. We're gonna, we can come right mm-hmm. back to it. But we're going to take a break. Uh, we've been speaking with Stephen Sawyer. As you've been listening, we're talking about treatment of sexual offenders, its effectiveness, the, um, the timeline on it, the p- impact of group and the power of it. He's the co-author of Group Therapy with Sexual Abuses. Please know if you are looking for treatment, um, you can contact the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abuses, that's ATSA, or an important resource for families and those looking for treatment, Stop It Now, a referral service. The number there is 1-888-773-8368. Stay with us. We'll be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Stephen Sawyer, and we've been speaking about treatment for sexual offenders. So, Stephen, my question, if and we can go the whole continuum from folks who've lost their job because of the code of silence in the Me Too culture has really dropped and the voices are speaking to anyone on that continuum um, who may, who is really involved or has been involved in some sexual offense that may even have resulted in criminal charges. We've looked at that. How can we talk about prevention if we think about this continuum? What are the kind of things mm-hmm. you would hope for? We've, we've wrestled with this and we continue to wrestle with it and try to try to find ways to think about what are the factors that contribute. There's been a little bit of research on um, factors related to first-time offending rather than after uh, risk for reoffending. Um, and it, it really starts with childhood, um, back to the idea of adverse childhood experiences. We know that not all adults who sexually offend were sexually abused, but some were. Uh, so maybe 30% of adults who sexually offend were also sexually abused. That doesn't mean that everyone who's sexually abused will go on to be an offender, but there, but we, we imagine that being harmed as a child physically, sexually, emotionally is a risk factor for lots of things. So the starting point is children to be, to be identifying children who are, have experienced harm of any kind and to be giving them the resources they need. And one of the one of the things I'm aware of is it's hard for a system to attend to children's needs for many years. They might get acute care at the time their their parents are abusive, they go get counseling and the family's put that together and then they leave the system. And what, what we aren't very good at, which is very difficult to do, is follow them for a period of years. Um, there's a very unique program in Minnesota here that was unfunded a while back that, that as soon as a family was identified at risk, they were given resources for employment, counseling, um, supportive services for four or five years until the teenagers were in or aged out and were 18 or 21. Very successful program, but very expensive. My point is that, that, that attending to children who experience any kind of adverse childhood experience as a starting point. There's programs that um, help educate teenagers in, in school. There's some pilot programs going on on the East Coast. Um, there's programs in colleges now, much more than there were years ago, about um, what is sexual assault and the whole affirmed consent idea. Mm-hmm. Part mm-hmm. of it, so part of this is education. Part of it is finding ways to identify anyone at risk. And we've got all, all these school shootings going on and questions about, did we see this coming? Could we see anything in those young men that pointed clearly that they were at risk to commit violence? Well, we know that there's some warning signs in some youth, and in some youth there aren't any outward warning signs. So it's really difficult. Um, so then we talk about, so the Center for Disease Control uses the ecological model, so we think about individual, family, the, the social environment they live in, what's the culture. So we think about prevention on all these different levels. What can we do at the individual level? What can be done in, in, uh, within the family to help families 
um, function to help families um, that where there's abuse happening to to to, to heal that um, schools and communities where where violence is prevalent, which you know we can raise children to be violence prone, or we can raise children to be peace oriented, but that can be done at the cultural or community level. So we think that we try to get our arms around what what level of prevention can we engage in, and where do we have the resources? Mm. Um, I heard I heard on uh, the news show a while back, Secretary of uh, no, the United Nations um, U.S. Representative UN Representative Nikki Haley said a very profound quote. She said, "We know prevention is cost effective, or something like that." Mm-hmm. Fascinating to hear her talking about preventing um, um, problems in in uh, other countries and talking about prevention. I've never heard I've never heard a, f- a federal official say that so clearly that we know prevention is the right thing to do. So mm. this is a question of how do we identify who to who to work for at the individual, family level, community level. Um, it's a large mm. problem. We just don't have our arms around it systematically. Now, I think your research does show very positive results when working with adolescents and youth in terms of um, sexual offense. That is, 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 does that, has that proven to be an opportunity to prevent further adult acting out on the part of these kids? There, there's a growing body of information about adolescents, and one of the more profound, firmly stated concepts is that adolescents typically don't grow up to offend. Um, there's a lot of folks in the field that are deeply worried about criminalizing young, mm-hmm. essentially criminalizing children. Um, when, when the research says, A, there's a very low, very low reoffense rate, and they typically don't grow up to be adult mm-hmm. offenders. Okay. And so, yes, yes, whatever attention they need, whatever therapy is necessary, but there's a great deal of concern that we are over-pathologizing, especially teenagers and, and 11 or 12-year-olds, and we ought to be thinking more about them as as children and what do children need developmentally, what do children need for sexual health, what kind of support do they need developmentally, because they're developmentally at a different stage than adults are. So, um Yes to, your, yes, to your answer, I mean, to your question, um, but, boy, there's a lot of movement to, to step away from so much focus on adolescents because they don't typically grow up to be adult offenders. Right. They're mythology. They're not, they're, adolescents are not young adult sex offenders. They're young children or young adults. And maybe um, it's more, in, and maybe more information than stigmatizing that they need. I mean, we they talk back and forth about consent stories and what consent means. And most most teens, where are they even learning how to deal? Sometimes online, sometimes with porn. So the the yeah. whole movement to really increase sexual and psychosexual education in ways that don't become yeah. kids rolling their eyes and not interested, but really getting closer to them understanding about intimacy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you're talking about prevention, we think about American culture, we have some of the highest rates of sexual violence, and some of the most, what I think, I personally think of as sexually repressive norms, we're, mm-hmm. we're so sexually repressed, and yet sexuality is everywhere, we sell cars, we use you know, women in swimsuits to sell cars of all things. So we have this very mixed message in America, sex is everywhere, but we don't talk about it. We right. educate about it. We sure aren't very sexually open compared to many other cultures. Um, and so, thinking so about prevention, well, maybe we need to be able to shift American culture a little farther toward being sexually open and having sexuality be more available to talk about mm-hmm. um, instead mm-hmm. of having it be buried in the dark corners of somebody's closet or in the dark web of the internet and it's secret. And mm-hmm. it's just it, I, that's a that's a factor. It's not a cause, but it's a part of the puzzle. Well, it, it's very so valuable. Many, yeah. Go ahead. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Well, I, I just it, there's so many stories about men um, that know rather little about sexuality, that know rather little about um, sexual health, 
And again, it's not a cause, but it's a part of the puzzle. That that's easy to fix. There's so much accurate, healthy sexual information available. It's just not available in a way that's um, very well communicated and, and very accessible. But it's a factor. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And, when and also in cons- marriages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you hear teen girls say, well, I thought I had to stay there because I said I would go to his house. And, of course, uh-huh. and consent. But that, um, she, she thought she had to. And he thought, well, I, I thought it was the more they say no, the more it means they really want. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, yeah, as you say, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, it's really quite a problem. But let's stop at this yeah. point because I want folks to know how to access you on the internet and where to find your book and the wealth of material and programs that you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've built my website, sawyersolutions.org, and my email, steve at sawyersolutions.org. Um, my office is here in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. And Private the practice. book is, where could people get the book, Stephen? Uh, the book was it was published by Safer Society. You can go directly there, Safer Society, um, Safer Society Press, www.safersociety.org, and um, Safer Society is a nonprofit. Has been a tremendous resource in the field for many years um, for, the, for our specialty. Um, they do a they've done a survey over the years that's been very helpful to the field, kind of a survey mm-hmm. of programs in North America. So safersociety.org. I want to say to any clinicians out there that I've been a group therapist for many, many years, and the book, Stephen's book, Group Therapy with Sexual Abusers, is truly a contribution because not only will you understand some of what we've barely touched on today, but you will understand how the power of group dynamics can be a, sort of adjusted to this population in a way that really is, it's heartwarming because it really moves us to certainly not excuse, but to invite the responsibility while we're helping people change their lives, as Stephen said. Um, Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for your work with sexual offenders. This is a difficult work, and you've really... In helping them to change, I think you have helped all of us. Mm, No, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the time and appreciate your very thoughtful questions. Okay, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast by tonight around 6.30 Eastern Time. This will be a podcast that you can access at any time. It'll be on my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes. It can. It may possibly be on Stephen's site. It's on the Voice of America site. Please remember, drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 